BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Papaya Podcast. I'm your hostess, Tran Hermostis, Sarah Nicole, and each week I'm going to be dishing out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom or something like that. So get ready to get inspired, get candid, get real, because we are all in this digital space together. I am very excited today to invite the founder of the National Alliance for Eating Disorders onto the podcast. The National Alliance for Eating Disorders is a national nonprofit organization dedicated to the outreach, education, early intervention, support, and advocacy for all eating disorders. Today's discussion is going to weave us through what eating disorders are perceived as, why we think they happen, some of the warning signs, what we can do as a support person or somebody who might be struggling. This conversation, I hope, is one that doesn't make it feel, I don't even know what the word is here. Honestly, it's a message of hope. Over and over again, you'll hear us talking in a message of hope. I've been somebody who was a support person to somebody struggling, and then I've been somebody struggling myself. On both sides, there was so much unknown about it. And truly through this conversation and this interview, with somebody who had a 10-year-long battle with various eating disorders, we get to come to a place of truly opening up the conversation. It's been a long time since I've had somebody who truly is in the work of eating disorders for in a while. We did this a couple of years ago with another guest, but I hope today's episode really kind of brings this message of hope along with some awareness and truly bringing their mission to your ears to listen today, to learn a little bit, maybe reflect on yourself and why we maybe talk about this in the first place. Enjoy today's show. And of course, as always, just be mindful of your own needs today. Obviously, we are going to be talking about diet culture and bodies. We're going to be talking about eating disorders. Take care of yourself as we weave through this conversation. Enjoy the show. All right, Joanna, thank you so much for having this conversation with me here today. It's so timely. And I I said this to you earlier, we've had eating disorder discussions on the show before, but it's been a couple of years. And in the last couple of years, I've seen tremendous amount of discussion and news around eating disorders, disordered eating. The stats are constantly changing. And yeah, so bring me into what it is you do and why? What brought you into this work in the first place? 
Yeah, absolutely. First and foremost, thank you so much for having me on today. Thank you so much for your willingness to have conversations around a topic that a lot of folks don't typically like to like to speak about. So again, my name is Joanna, pronouns she, her, and I'm the CEO of the Alliance, the National Alliance for Eating Disorders. We are the leading national nonprofit organization that uh, provides education, referrals, and support for all individuals experiencing all types of eating disorders. And it's really important for me to say all individuals with all types of eating disorders because so many of us have grown up in a world where when we think eating disorders, we think that archaic stereotype, you know, typically cis, het, female identifying, very small bodied. And in fact, only 6% of all individuals that have eating disorders are medically underweight. The majority of people with eating disorders live in all shapes and sizes. They come in all colors. They come in all genders. They call, come in all ages. Um, and so what we do at the Alliance is we do work to eradicate that very harmful shame and stigma that surround eating disorders and that are often the roadblock to individuals reaching out for help. So we do everything from educating our frontline providers, doctors, nurses, dentists, on how to recognize and refer, because globally, less than 20% of all healthcare providers are given any education on what eating disorders are. And when you think about in the U.S., for example, there are over 29 million Americans that will experience an eating disorder in their lifetime. So roughly one in nine, we should be doing better. And we're just talking about a diagnosable eating disorder. As you and I talked about before, disordered eating affects so many people, right? Like I don't think anyone is immune to developing that. So at the Alliance, we do a lot of educating we also do a lot of referrals to all levels of care. So from therapists, dietitians, all the way up to acute medical stabilization. And then third, we hold a lot of virtual free mm. therapist-led support groups that are attended by individuals from 65 countries around the world. But more than anything, we're here to walk next to you on your journey to recovery and let you know that you're not alone, that recovery is possible and it's actually happening. So- that's a little bit about the National Alliance. And the reason why I do my work is I'm someone of lived experience. I experienced my eating disorder for over a decade. I was what you consider a non-discriminatory eating disorder human, meaning you yeah. name it, and I did it. I yeah. was all sizes and I really was in awe of how much of a lack of knowledge, how much of a lack of intervention and how much of a lack of support and access to care there was. So uh, when I was 21, I was planning on getting my PhD in, in clinical psychology and give back and make a difference. But instead I decided that what I really wanted to do was talk to that seventh grade version of myself who felt like she didn't deserve to be seen and heard and didn't deserve to take up space. And so I took out a loan and I founded the Alliance. And 21 years later, few wrinkles, some gray hair, oh here I my am. Goodness. <laughs> you just said so much there that I, I want to backtrack a little bit on a couple of things you said. First of all, the the diversity in eating disorders. Recently, we saw Tess Holliday, who is a massive body positive yes. um, activist advocate, come forward with the fact that she is now been diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. That's how you said it. And people were mad. 
They were mad that somebody in a large body could possibly have an eating disorder like anorexia, like you said, that maybe isn't what we perceived anorexia to look like. I'm somebody, I grew up with a family member who, yeah, several family members, but one in particular that battled eating disorder for a year and very much was that 6%. And I remember feeling like, because that's what Mm -hmm. it looked like, that might be what it is. And I felt so helpless during that season. But then it also shocks me that I still fell into it myself. Not that I was ever, and, and this is where the disordered eating and the eating disorder, and I have a big question about this because a lot of people aren't getting diagnosed. They're not actually properly going through it. I think for me, in my story, I was aggressively dieting. When you say that less than 20% of healthcare providers are even like able to recognize these things, I went to a doctor with a loss of feeling in my legs and I had a, needles put into my legs with electric shocks put up into them for them to determine that I had pinched nerves all in my joints. And they said, it's because you've just lost a lot of weight. It's just your body adjusting. Nobody stepped in. I went from my family doctor to emerge to a neurologist, to this muscle person, all for not one of them to say, this is actually something problematic that to the point that I'm bringing myself to is After I've learned so much about diet culture, eating disorders, all of this, and Mm -hmm. when people said eating disorders, I just thought of that family member. I thought of the person that I knew was struggling with anorexia and bulimia. It was so obvious. But for me, I was still eating. I was still exercising. I couldn't see Mm -hmm. myself in that spot. But when the words were reversed and you said disordered eating, I was like, well, yeah, don't we all have that? Don't we all have a weird relationship with food? But then I reflectively look back and I go, it was actually really severe. I was intentionally under eating and over exercising to an obsessive degree. I was struggling with mental health. My body was always cold. And I remember thinking, is this what just thin people exist in? Is it you're just cold all the time? And like, I just remember so much of it, but I never went to a doctor and was like, can you diagnose me for something that I had years ago? So it's always been a bit of a weird thing. And I wonder for you, how many people are actually getting diagnosed and is the diagnosis important? So, wow. Thank you so much for everything you you just said. And I will definitely absolutely answer that that question, but I wanted to to go back to what you said first off about Tess Holiday because I think that's such an important part of what what you talked about is unfortunately we live in a world, I don't want to even say a country because obviously this is not country specific that is riddled in fat phobia, riddled in diet culture dripping that has somehow equated health with weight. And we all know that that's, that's absolutely not true. And, you know, what I like to say for individuals, so we have this type of eating disorder called atypical anorexia, which is when you don't have that, what you talked about, that extremely small bodied. And what I like to refer atypical anorexia as is just anorexia with a, with a huge plate of fat phobia and weight bias. That's all the difference that it is because we know medically that individuals that have atypical anorexia versus anorexia nervosa have the same health implications. They're just as ill. They're just as sick. It's just the difference is, is that, that weight piece, quote unquote. 
And I think it's so important that we have these amazing, brave humans like the Tess Holidays that literally in the midst of her experience went out there, was so vulnerable, allowed people to be seen and heard that looked like her, that experience. And then you have this outrage, this community that says, absolutely not. Like you cannot, it's a disgrace is, is really what it is. You know, it's how dare we would never second guess anyone's physical ailment. We would say, of course, like if you're experiencing cancer, of course. And I think that that has made me such a huge advocate for mental health in general, because I think so often individuals see mental health as something that we can choose, we can fix, right? Uh, You would never tell someone with diabetes, I think I need you to try real hard to ameliorate your blood sugars on your own. Of course, we give them the meds to help them. Same thing with cancer, but with eating disorders, with anxiety, depression, we're like, if you, why are you so sad? Why are you so anxious? Why can you just not eat? Or why can you just stop eating? I remember that with growing up, just thinking like, why, why are you doing this? Like, why would you choose this? And being so frustrated that this was such a perpetual part of our existence that I felt it was very much a choice, very much so. And I did too. I will tell you very honestly, for a lot of my life, I thought that I caused my eating disorder because I remember I was 11 and a half years old and I know the exact moment that I went on my first real diet. And I remember it was my choice. And this is where I think that there's not enough education, which is one of the things that makes me so passionate, is that eating disorders are biopsychosocial illnesses which means that they're genetic in in nature. So it's like this perfect storm that comes together that genes loads the proverbial gun and the environment pulls a trigger. And it could also- I did not know that. Absolutely. In fact, about 60% of the cause of eating disorders is genes. If you look at like your family lineage- Oftentimes you can be like, oh, maybe a, a family member didn't have a diagnosis, but maybe they were a little idiosyncratic around food, or maybe they had a lot of anxiety, or maybe they experienced um, alcoholism. Like you can see it. But if you think about it, eating disorders, which tend to just be the, the tip of the iceberg, right? It's underneath, it's the co occurring anxiety, depression obsessive compulsive disorder, substance use disorder. In fact, 50% of individuals that experience eating disorders will probably also experience some type of alcoholism or substance use. When we take like sort of that Scooby-like mask off, we realize that eating disorders are coping mechanisms. They're maladaptive coping mechanisms, right? I don't know about you, but me, I was a perfectionist. Everything was either black or white all or nothing. I had to excel. I had to be the best. And I, for me, my eating disorder sold me this lie that it Mm. could help me get there. If only I was thin enough, if only I was smart enough, if only I was pretty enough, if only I was all of those things, then maybe I would start loving the human that I am inside. And we Mm. all know that that's sort of like, you know, Alice in Wonderland when she's chasing that white rabbit, as soon as she gets close to it, it leaves again. And so yeah. for me, so much of my healing, so much of my therapy had to be learning how to have health, healthy coping tools, but also realizing that this image of perfection is just never going to get there. So really important to change the narrative that, as you said, this is not your fault. This is not something that you wake up in the morning and look outside and say, it's a beautiful day and insert city. 
I think I'm going to have an eating disorder today. That's not how it works. I have to share with you this new book I'm reading right now called People Change. It's by Vivek Sharaya, who is also the best-selling author of I'm Afraid of Men. But in People Change, Vivek lets readers in on the secrets to a life of reinvention. People Change is a meditation on change itself, why we fear it, why we're drawn to it, what motivates us to change, and what traps us in place. It's a guide to embracing our many selves and the inspiration to discover who we'll become next. Vivek Shraya knows this to be true. People change. We change our haircuts and our outfits and our minds. We change names, titles, labels. We attempt to blend in or to stand out. We outgrow relationships. We abandon dreams for new ones. We start fresh. We seize control of our stories and we make resolutions. That is just a little bit about this book. And I hope that tiny teaser truly gets you picking this book up. People Change is available wherever great books are sold, now available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Check it out. People Change by Vivek Sharaya. I'm Arielle Laurie, host of the Blonde Files podcast, where every Wednesday I cover all things wellness. After nearly dying from drugs and alcohol six years ago, I've been on a mission to live my best, most fulfilled life, and I'm sharing everything with you. From how to achieve optimal health, well-being, and fulfillment to the best beauty tips and even cosmetic procedures, I cover it all with raw, candid conversations with experts and inspirational guests. Make sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. I, I actually did a podcast one time with my friend Natalie, and she shared that her eating disorder started when her dad went through being arrested, this traumatic event that happened in front of her. And it was like this something that she could control. It was this one thing, had nothing to do with her body image, had nothing really like it wasn't that. And that was the first time I really experienced that kind of a, a conversation with somebody discussing it in that way. Because for me, in, in going through it all, I remember just wanting to lose weight. I'd been on so many diets in my life, but there was something that changed in my environment, I guess. And I remember I just started getting so much validation and then I started to feel superior. And this was where a lot of that fat phobia came out, but a lot of the lies of diet culture came out as well, where I just did really think kind of like you said, that chasing of the white rabbit. I really did believe that happiness was going to be on the other side of losing weight. And there was parts of it that felt like happiness. It it almost was like emulated happiness. There was a, you're being validated. You're getting all these like dopamine hits from people. I was growing an Instagram page. I mean, this was the success that I'd been chasing for a decade. Suddenly I can get it by doing this. I had attention from men. I had attention from women. I was just feeling really superior. Like I had somehow conquered all of this whole thing. I no longer was like somebody who was dieting or anything like that. And I remember at the end of it, 
after I recognized what dieting had truly done. And, and to be fair, I'm still dealing not just mentally with the aftermath of it, but like hormonally, Mm -hmm. physically, like I don't talk about this super openly, Mm -hmm. but I, I have thyroid issues now. Like I have things that I didn't have before I did all of this dieting. I've had a lot of medical stuff that keeps popping up and it's frustrating because it's like, I know what it is that happened. And I know that, you know, it's hard to not create that self-blame, but essentially what I kind of wanted to bring myself to is like, there is so many different reasons that we might go through this, but in afterwards, I was having a conversation with somebody who at the time was dieting and they were like, well, I just don't think all diets are bad. And I was like, fair enough. Diets are truly a a word that we use for something, but it means a lot of things. And I want to know your opinion on this. It's just the stats around dieting and, and I would love for you to, if you have any stats with you, but I just recognize, you know, we look at alcohol and there's warnings on it. We look at cigarettes and there's warnings on it. You go to the casino and there's warnings about addictive personality or like addiction to these things, how to seek help if you're struggling with it. And like I said to you, I sat in the nail salon today and had to watch five diet ads and there was not one warning in them that maybe said you might experience this. Do you know what the stat is for those who go through dieting who might end up with disordered eating or eating disorders? So we know the number one behavior that leads to the development of eating disorders is dieting. We absolutely do know this. And we know that dieting on the whole is built on this idea of restriction, which is why diets don't work, right? Like, cause it's, you are eliminating something that you can't have. And as a human, when you can't have something, you tend to perseverate on it, right? And restriction then leads to binging, which is just that behavior that that happens all the time. And I really wish that we were at a place globally where we were putting sort of that, hey, this can happen. This is good. This is bad. This is, this is all of it. But unfortunately, the diet industry is way, way too wealthy and way too powerful. And that's what it comes down to. I have an amazing colleague, Dr. Bryn Austin out of Harvard. She runs a Striped and she's doing this amazing work um, to try to get diet products out of like youth's hands. Like when you see the statistics about individuals, specifically during the pandemic, we're seeing these huge increases of, of diet product use in minority populations. And it sort of blows that, that bullshit, excuse my language, stereotype of, oh, this is just like only Caucasian female identifying people are into it. Absolutely not. People are experiencing diets, all types of individuals all over this globe. And it's because we're, we're chasing this ideal, which you just said so beautifully of when you get there, all these things are going to happen. And unfortunately, we do get that amazing positive reinforcement, right? Like you get, you feel good. You get those dopamine hits that you talked about. You get elevated and then you get this feeling of, oh shit, if if I do X, Y, and Z, this is going to go and that is not okay. Yeah. And then sometimes for individuals that have that hard wiring, that have that genetic predisposition, what they what happens is you hit like your body set point. And once you go under your body set point, that's when like the genes sort of kick in. And that's when it oftentimes can go into just a diet, into disordered eating, into Mm. eating disorders. And there's a lot of conversation around what is the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders. And my simple answer, and it's so loaded, 
is when you can no longer do life in the manner in which you're used to doing. For example, I knew that for me that that line had changed when I used to be a professional ballet dancer in my, in my former life. When I started not being able to eat at certain restaurants because I would panic over I couldn't find anything on the menu or I cut out major food groups or when I would lie and say, please pick me up at this time versus this time because I had to get a workout in. Or if I couldn't work yeah. out in a day, how did I feel? What was my motivation to work out? All of those things, when you can no longer effectively do life in the manner in which you're accustomed to, that's when that line sort of goes. And unfortunately, the diagnostic or the definitions of eating disorders still have so far to go because I don't think they caught up with it. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. And I just want to say something as well in terms of like that feeling that I experienced of like when you get there, you'll find this and you get all this praise and attention and getting to shop at the stores that fit you. I also have to just note for anybody listening, there's another side of it too. And it's the one that you don't expect. And it's full of grief and anger and resentment because you're the same person that walked this earth and suddenly everybody sees you. That feels good for half the time. And it feels real shit for the other half. And that other half is, is way heavier than anything you could carry on your body. When you realize that the most important thing that some people are seeing you for is what you look like is a devastating blow to who you are. I remember one time I was on a date with this guy and he said, you know, you're a unicorn human because you have the personality of a fat girl and you have the body of a thin girl. And I thought my whole life, I have had to use my personality to get people to like me. And now I'm using my body to get people to pay attention to me. And now it's like, it's been laid out for me as a compliment. And I walked out of that. Like, I never want to, like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it was said to me. And it was said in different ways too. Like women would say, oh, you could be such a bitch, but you're not. I guess that's because you haven't always been thin. You're this, you're that. And there's this perce- I was like, what yeah. is like our perceptions and the fat phobia that is so layered within us. And even, you know, now, as I say, words like fat, having to unlearn that being a negative thing, even catching myself when my kids are like, say the word fat. And I'm like, no, that's actually not a bad word. Like, that's actually not a bad thing to say. That's actually just a descriptor. There's so much unlearning and it is so layered. It's so generational. And there's a lot of healing that happens that happens years and years and years. I mean, I would have thought when I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I would have thought I was very well-equipped. I'd had my tools. I'd been talking. I was in this arena. I knew what I was doing. And then I got pregnant and I was stripped of the ability to be able to work out. And like you said, like when it starts to affect you, it was no longer like I was, I was diagnosed with something previous. So I wasn't, I was not allowed to work out. Mm -hmm. And the thoughts that crept up and then having to eat foods that I hadn't been allowing myself to eat that I didn't recognize that were the only things I could get down. And like having to go through all of that, then having a baby. And then I I remember just thinking, this is truly lifelong work. You're never just going to use the tools because sometimes it's like a constant sharpening of the tools in order to get through this. This last year has been like in the arena with a bull and I've had to do it in real time where before I was like, yeah, in the past I went through this, that, the other, but eating disorders nowadays, this is where I'm really getting concerned because 
I spend time on Instagram and most of the people I follow and people that follow me were of general consensus of let's not comment on each other's bodies. Let's be supportive. Let's down with the diet culture. And then I scroll TikTok for two seconds and it is like the rug gets pulled out from under you. And I'm like, I, and I can't just turn around and say to my kids, put those down, put your phone down, get rid of TikTok. No, I, there has to be an equipping to this. And we also have to start being very hyper aware. This last week, I saw a TikTok where a woman was basically standing there and she said, you know, if you want to lose the baby weight, don't be lazy. (laughs) And then she went on to say that she only eats a, I don't even know if I should speak uh, numbers, very, very, very little doesn't work out, also has had plastic surgery, all of these things. And I thought, and here you are with women who are in their most fragile time of healing, tremendous healing, a body that's literally turning over. And here we are calling people lazy. And it was just right in front of my face. And I just like had to turn my phone away. But there's, there's this thing with TikTok and it's unfortunate, but it's here. And we're seeing an uptick of I was reading an article recently of an uptick in teen boys struggling mm-hmm. with yep. eating disorders and that we're seeing they're being more and more exposed to methods, more exposed to body modifications. And, and I'm so, I'm so very much like body autonomy, number one, yes. but number two, make that decision from like your standpoint yes. for you. How do you feel about how we're going to deal with this wave of what is happening and what's coming when it comes to what's happening on social media, knowing we can't just throw out the whole thing. We've got to learn how to deal with it and how to manage it and how to talk to these kids and talk to ourselves while we're at it, like truly talk to ourselves too. Yeah. I think it's, it comes down to holding these platforms accountable and becoming educated consumers, truthfully. I mean, we all know recently everything that happened with the Instagram files and the um, data and research. And I really appreciate so much of what you said and, and what you shared at the beginning. I definitely want to touch back on social media is not going anywhere. Like we know yeah. this, right? So to say, oh, we need to avoid it. It's just not gonna, it's not gonna do anything. And, and I've always been of the mindset that you get more flies with honey than with vinegar. So if mm-hmm. us as a nonprofit, as a national nonprofit organization that says, okay, all social media is bad. Don't do it. That's not yeah. gonna do anything. No, exactly. But if we can come to the table, have conversations with said enterprises, like the Instagrams, the Facebooks, the TikToks of the world to say, here are a few things you can do. You can do interception. You could, you know, you can do bumps. You can do check-ins. You can do all of that stuff. Um, that would go a long way. And then it's us mm-hmm. as as parents, like in, in this situation, I have a five-year-old little girl and I'm very petrified of, of what it's going to be like for her. But it's also teaching our kids to be educated consumers, to know that yes. you get to unfollow, you get to mute. You get to, I mean, algorithms are very smart. They know what you like. And it's not so much to be like, oh, avoid it at all costs. Like don't make it taboo, but have Mm. that education of their number one job is to make you feel bad about yourself so that you will partake in a product. So you'll become a consumer. You you are the most powerful person on the internet because you are the consumer. So you have the dollar in your hand definitely be very wise. Also, one of the things that that I say all the time is the other thing that that you can do is you can report bad content. You can report triggering content. Like, I don't know about you, but like the minute that the clock um, stroke midnight on December 31st into January, I was like, and here we go. And so I literally spent the first two weeks 
of the, of, of this year on Instagram, like every diet product, I reported it. I reported it. Mm-hmm. And diet products are no longer coming on my feet anymore. Finally, yes. after this time, you have immense power, utilize it. And when companies are doing stuff, that's great. If you have influencers or individuals that are doing things right, like you, we need to raise them up. We need to let other people know about them. Like one of the things that we do all the time is when we find amazing people to, to follow, we, we share, we share that information mm. because something that I think has been so beautiful about your feed specifically is you've been very transparent of like what has happened and how you're feeling and after the baby. And it's like, you've just birthed a child. Lazy is the last word that we will ever, ever say to anyone. Honest to goodness. So again, and we need to remember that shaming people is not going to motivate them to it's the least effective the body. tool. Yes. And it's like, stop shaming people because that's, I mean, there's so much wrong with that. The other thing that I just wanted to say is what you shared originally in, in your last, in your last share, just about how lonely and exposed you felt. Thank you for saying that because so many individuals that have gone on this journey and they think that it's going to be a certain way, they all have very similar responses to you. And I think that it can get so scary because you get to this place and typically your your mood is involved. So you might experience depression, you might experience anxiety. And then it's like, okay, well, what do I, what do I grasp onto? Oftentimes people will then grasp back onto food. They'll, they'll grasp onto alcohol, they'll exercise drugs, whatever it is, because we can't heal ourselves from the outside in, just as Mm -hmm. you said, we have to heal ourselves Mm -hmm. from the inside out. And remember that coping tools, things that may have worked at one point of your life may not work forever. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that we stop reaching out for for coping tools. It means that we just have to widen our toolbox a little bit and know that we're human beings that are constantly evolving. I say this all the time to people. You don't recover to utopia. You recover to life. Life is not sunshine bunnies and rainbows. It's real. And there's going to be amazing days and there's going to be some really terrible days. But in between is that rainbow where you get to experience all the days. And I will tell you that I came really close to losing my life several times with my eating disorder. And my recovery was the hardest thing that I ever did because Mm -hmm. I thought I was the exception to the rule. I thought that I would never get better because it was so much a part of my life. It felt as if it was my identity, even though it never was my identity. Mm. I fought tooth and nail for my recovery and it was messy and it was difficult. And I will tell you, it's the best thing that I ever did. And it's still a work in progress. It's always a work in progress. My friend Tash shared this once on a podcast about an entirely different subject, but she said, sometimes the things that we like struggle with the things that make us feel like we're special. And that's what can be so hard to let go of is it when this thing becomes so part of your identity, how do we move past it? And how do we, how do we move on? But I also have to kind of ask this because I've been on both sides. I've been in it and I know nothing worked when anybody said anything to me, those who did say something, Mm didn't work. And I know what it was like being on the outside of watching somebody through their eating disorder and feeling entirely helpless. And then I've noticed in the last couple of years, people that I knew have struggled in the past and noticing, and I'm like, I will never comment on your body, but there's like this, you notice it, you notice there's a shift. Is there anything as a support person that 
you can do that is not causing harm and shame to the person that might be struggling, but might not be too? Yeah. I think having an an honest and open conversation leading with I statements, one of the things that I wish someone would have said to me when I was in my struggle was, I'm really sorry that you're going through this because it goes back to this idea, right? That people think that it is a choice, but validating, I'm really sorry that you're going through this. I can't even imagine how difficult it is. I love you and I'm here for you. And I just want to walk next to you. So please let me know if there's anything that I can do to walk next to you. That is for someone who you know is ha- is ex- experiencing an eating disorder. Now, if it's a loved one that you perceive, you think that um, they, they may have an eating disorder, you can talk about, you know, hey, I've noticed and talk about different things about their personality. Because typically what you see is also it mirrored either they're a little bit more withdrawn or they're a little different is just say, I've noticed this about you. And I was just wondering if everything is okay. I care mm. about you. I love you. And I just want you to know that whatever you're going through, I'm here. And making sure to constantly use that I statement as opposed to you. Because I don't know about you, but for me, when I was going through it, people were very, they were almost like screaming a little bit. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to kill yourself. Like you need to do better. Mm. And what do you think that does to people? It causes them to obviously be shameful, but also put up that, that really big wall. And they're not going to say anything to you. They're not going to even entertain a conversation but honestly, the most, the more that you can talk from a place of love, support, mm. and that I statement, the more effective it's going to be. That's really good to hear because it, it it truly is such a helpless feeling. And everybody I know that's ever struggled, thank goodness, has come to a place of restoration and healing. But it was a, it's like a decade. Sometimes yeah. it's like a decade, and then it's like support for the rest of their life. Could you kind of? I really want people to be aware. We're, we're very hypersaturated with language around eating disorders and diet culture to the point that sometimes I feel it's almost desensitizing us to what it is, to the severity of it. Like it feels like it literally feels like everybody has an eating disorder. Statistically, a lot of people have eating disorders, but it feels very removed from the severity of it. Could you talk through some stats on eating disorders in as it stands from 2021 to 2022? Well, I will tell you that the pandemic has wreaked havoc on populations that are experiencing eating disorders. To give you an idea, in the U.S. specifically, every 52 minutes, someone dies as a direct result of their eating disorder in this country. It has the second highest lethality rate, just second to opioid addiction. And if you think about how much we hear about opioid addiction, right? How many, how often we hear, and we do not, I'm uh, yes to everything you just said. We don't talk about the severity of, of eating disorders. Um, only about 25% of individuals that will experience an eating disorder ever get access to, to care too, which is why I'm so passionate about the work that, that we do is because we know that with access to care, people get better. That's, that's the bottom line. But we cannot be expected to recover on our own. Just how, like I said at the beginning, you can't expect someone with cancer to ameliorate on their own. It's not going to happen. We need access to really good care. And sometimes like for for those of you that are listening that have a loved one going through it, sometimes that can mean a therapist, a dietitian, perhaps a psychiatrist, maybe a physician. It's a big group of people. And then if you need higher levels of care, like going to residential treatment or inpatient, but 
please know that eating disorders are serious. They're actually Mm. um, serious mental illness. They are a brain-based biological illness. And it's not something that people choose. And it's not something that people can just turn off. So it absolutely is serious. And on the flip side, I do want to say that it does get better. With access to care, it absolutely does get better. And it's really interesting because as a field, we haven't come to an answer of, is it are you recovered? Are you in recovery? Are you recovering? Are you healed? Whatever the word is. And my take is, and I do prescribe to recovered. That's where I've landed because my eating disorder is no longer a part of my personal life. I mean, I talk about it 10 hours a day, but it's not mine. But I have to tell you that anxiety has always been sort of that underpinning and it continues to be. And I wouldn't be fully transparent if I didn't share that the last two years of this pandemic have wreaked havoc on my anxiety. And I think that what's so important, and I think what I'm so excited about where our world has come in reference to eating disorders is the fact that we have a lot more people that are talking about their experiences because you need to know that you're not alone. When I was going through my eating disorder, The only person that I knew besides Karen Carpenter who had passed away from her eating disorder was Tracy Gold. She was on a show called Growing Pains. And that was it. That was it. I didn't know anyone else. And so the first time when I walked into a therapist office at the age of 20 and I said, I shared my story and I said, I need help. She wasn't a specialist in the treatment of eating disorder. She looked at me and she goes, I'm really happy that you're here, but I need you to know that you're always going to be struggling with this. And I understand what she was saying, but what I needed to hear in that moment is that it gets better. Mm. And so for anyone who's listening, please know that it gets better. It's not going to be a perfect linear recovery. You will trip and fall, but it's not about the trips and the falls. It's about picking yourself up, dusting yourself off and continuing to put one foot in front of the other and knowing that you're not alone and that you don't have to do this alone. Thank you so much for sharing that. As as one last little question, because I realized even within like my own bias around eating disorders, as even I said, like when I know somebody who struggled and I see them having body change, how do we show up for them? And even within that, recognizing that's still within the 6% realm of those who look like that. So what are everyday things that we should not be doing or to be doing to help support people not knowing where they are potentially in a journey, especially knowing that it doesn't discriminate and it is very body diverse, very gender diverse. Is there some things that we that we could be better at? I think you hit the nail on the head. First of all, not making comments on body shape and size. I think limiting mm-hmm. the conversation around diet talk or body talk. I will tell you mm-hmm. diet talk is, I think, the world's favorite pastime. It's what everyone talks Truly. about. Truly. And I think even being aware of like, as you're connecting with like little children, the first thing that we say is, oh my gosh, she's so pretty or, oh my gosh, she's so cute. Like we go straight to the physical, Appearance, bring yeah. more, like bring other adjectives to the conversation. You're so funny. Yeah. You're so witty. You're so silly. You're so, you know, all of those, bring those. You give the best hugs. I try yes. and do ones like that. Like things that when I think about it, sometimes or just like, you have the most sparkly eyes. Like there's things that are so, they're still so warm and so inviting and not like, and and it's true, right? When you really, I, I found in the last few years, the one thing I've noticed the most is how much we really do 
revolve ourselves around bodies and our diets. And when you remove that as the factor in your like relationships, friendships, everything, how much more you see, like, let's be real relationships get so good and so intimate and so fulfilling when you don't feel like there's a standard to be met on either side. And you start to really see like, holy crap, you're really amazing at this. And it's no longer about what they're wearing that I remember being in high school. It really was about what you looked like and things like that, which is why I wore (laughs) hoodies all the time. Cause like, well, first of all, it's all that fit me, but truly like, I, I remember that's all we talked about. That's all we did. And, And I see my daughters now growing up and, and you recognize, um, how much it's still there. It can be really easy to sit in your own bubbles. And I've seen countless of my kids' friends who will pop over and they pick up a package of something and they turn it over immediately and they read something and they're like, oh, there's a lot of calories in this. And I'm like, we haven't heard that word in our house. Yeah. How long? Yeah. It's still there. Social media isn't the be all and end all. There will always be an uncle at a table or a friend that comes to your house. It's everywhere. So it really is I think within our own control and within the tools that we can get access to, which is why I think the so important, even sharing this and being able to learn more about what you're doing, how many people now will gain access to information and help. And this is why I love what you're doing. And I would love for you to share just how people could really get connected. Maybe there's something within this conversation today that they're going, this is actually alarming. I'm realizing that I actually have impact in my everyday, or I think I might be getting to that point, or I know somebody in my relationship is, I'm recognizing it within my family or my kids. How can we get connected and start getting that support? So true. Yeah, no, absolutely. You can definitely visit us online. Our website is allianceforeatingdisorders.com. We're on all social platforms at, at Alliance for ED. And we have everything from referrals to care to free support groups. And we have a very big event coming up the last weekend of February, where we're going to have a support group marathon on Saturday, February 26th. It can be accessed from all around the world from 8 a.m. Eastern time to midnight every hour on the hour are free support groups. And there's an amazing rally for recovery on on Sunday, February 27th. So we're here. And and the last thing I wanted to add to, to what you just said so beautifully, as far as like, how do you check in with people? Check in with people. I think so often we get so scared, but even check in on even the people that you don't think you need to check in on. Like just send them a text and say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm very big in the the lost art of writing, like sending people a card and saying, you are so special. I am so grateful for you because as you create, as you put money in that relationship bank, they will be a lot more willing to open up the door if and when they need to. So validating all of that. And the end of the day, what we do have control over is our dialogue, our choices, where we choose. So if you do have fear of sending your loved one or you into such a a weight conscious, fat phobic, weight biased world is educate, 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 have the willingness to have conversations where it's not taboo, you know, is this is what calories really do for you. People do come in all shapes and sizes. And I'm totally with you on this whole unlearning and unpacking. I mean, the first assignment my daughter had in kindergarten was to read a book that was called Good Food Versus Bad Food. And she's five. 
And we live in a house where all foods fit, we're intuitive eating. And I felt very frustrated, overwhelmed. And so the one thing that I knew I had control over is thinking, my daughter doesn't need to do this. So I called up her teacher and I said, this is what's wrong with it. Can you give her an alternate book for us to read? That's where we gain our power. That's where we create conversations. And I will tell you, your kids, your loved ones around you are watching. So if you model healthful behavior, it's going to be effective. But the most important thing, and I'm so grateful for our time, is if you or someone you know is experiencing an eating disorder, know that there is help, that there is hope, that recovery is possible, and you're certainly not alone. Ugh. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time and for everything you're doing. I'm going to have everything in the show notes for those listening as well, but I just, this is such a tender conversation and yet such an empowering one. It is such a message of hope and resilience and so much more. You are not to blame. There is no shame here. It is truly a serious thing and, but something that truly holds a lot of hope. So thank you so much for everything you've said here today. And for everyone listening, we will see you next week. Take care. Well, friends, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode. For more information on this episode, check out the show notes or find us on Instagram at the Papaya Podcast. And if you loved what you just listened to or know somebody who would, please share it. Simply screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us. Last but not least, if you'd like to lend your personal support to the podcast, take a moment and leave a review on iTunes. We would be oh so grateful. Tune in next week for a fresh new episode of the Papaya Podcast, and we'll see you then.